So we pick it up tonight in chapter 15 with Absalom, his son, in the midst of treason. He sat in the city gates. He has swayed the people for himself. We're told that the conspiracy has grown strong. He has recruited David's number one counselor, Ahithophel, who is the grandfather of Bathsheba, which adds to the plot of all the things going on in the castle and the palace. And we pick up in verse 13 where we read this. Now, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Absalom had gone to Hebron with his dad's permission to do something spiritual, but in fact, it was the foundation of how he would launch his coup and his treason against his dad. And so David gets the news. This is what's happening. Verse 14, David said to all the servants who were there with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites, also the Peleothites, and also the Gittites. These are Gentiles that were aligned to, allied to David. 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why are you going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own land. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I, I go not knowing where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Just a side note, David referred to Absalom already as the king, but Ittai refuses to call Absalom king. He calls David king. It's worth noting. Verse 23. And so Gittite's men crossed over, and then we read in verse 23, all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark, and Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Amos, Amos, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up the scent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. Then someone said to David, uh, they told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, 
as I was your father's servant previously, so I will be your servant also, that then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar the priests with you? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell Zadok and Abathar the priest. Indeed, they, they, they have there with them their two sons, Hamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. There's so much historical happenings in this text, and there's so many things just kind of jump out. We read this text Tuesday night and kind of hit on some of these things. But there's so much in motion. Just the Ark of the Covenant, the contrast. Think about when David was younger and he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and they're dancing and singing and praising the Lord. It's like the happiest day ever. It's like best day ever. It's just so awesome. Huge feast, huge party for everybody. And here, here's the Ark of the Covenant again. They're carrying it the right way on their shoulders. And they bring the Ark to David. And David's like, no. He's not bigger than the Ark. And his problem isn't bigger than the, the people of God. David realizes, like in Psalm 8, he says, what, are, what is man that you're mindful of him? When I look at the stars and the heavens, I consider, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you even consider him? David's son Solomon would say, our life is a vapor. James in the book of James would say the same thing. Our life is a vapor. Do you realize we're just a vapor? Our greatest achievements in sports, education, life, beauty, the arts, all the billionaires that want to rule the planet, they're just a vapor. And all of our disappointments and all of our shame and all of our sorrows and all of our shortcomings, they're just a vapor. There's trillions of galaxies out there with trillions of comets and asteroids doing what they do. They've all got a name from the Lord. He knows the hair of every one of our heads tonight. Exactly how many hairs on your head, every cell in your body. We're just a vapor. We often overestimate how, how significant our lives are because we tend to be prideful. But some people, because they're afraid to dream, often underestimate how significant their lives can be when it's a life of faith lived out for the Lord. But when you're a woman with a heart for God or a man with a heart for God like David, in this moment, you're the king. Everything you know, this is your position. This is your identity. This is your possessions. This is the promises. This is everything that you've accumulated in your life at about the age of 50. And you're losing it all on one day, just like Job. This is very similar to Job chapter 1 and 2, where he lost everything in one day, a very wealthy man. Lost his children, and in David's case, it's even worse because his son is turned against them. That'd actually be probably worse. And it's just, in that moment, David, with the heart for God, just simply says, like, the Ark of the Covenant stays with the people of God. Like, no one is that important, that they're more important than the heart of God for the people of God. We're all, we're, no, no one is above the people of God or the covenants of God for his people. The greatest man, the greatest woman, we're nothing, we're a vapor. It's all about the Lord. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is before all things, and him all things consistent are held together. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Like, the ark stays in Jerusalem. I'm just David. Before me was a king. After me will be kings. Now, most human beings can say this of their life, and they're 
their greatest moments and worst moments are not in the holy word of God for every generation to read like David's. So we do get the benefit of seeing David's whole life in the word of God preserved and the characters in the story like Ahithophel and Abathar preserved in the word as well. So that does make it unique. So the story of this man and the women, the ten concubines, everybody, everything, Bathsheba, all of it, it is recorded for us to give us encouragement and comfort about our life. And I just see immediately, just in the context, not really an application, that David with the man for God's own heart is like, I don't need the Ark of the Covenant. And I've talked about this, especially in the European wars of the last thousand years. They all have their religious icons, whether it's the Poles or the Slavic people, the Russians, whatever, Eastern European, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, they would love to bring out their icons and kiss the icons before they go into battle. And even uh, world religions devoid of anything to do with Christianity, same thing. You know, the Indians had their little shama things they'd do. And I mean, this is just, and David's like, there's no, we don't need the ark. It belongs to God's people. We saw in Psalm 51 last week when he sinned with Bathsheba and we read Psalm 51 that God's not looking for sacrifices. And it's not about the outward things that impress us with acts of religion and do-gooding. But a broken and contrite spirit, that is what the Lord accepts. And it would be Solomon, David's son, who'd write in Proverbs 3 that, you know, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's what God wants to see from us is humility. And in this dark day, in this deep this darkest of days of keeping the faith, because the real, the beauty in this chapter, because there is beauty in this chapter, is David's faith just shines through in the darkest of days. And we've seen his faith shine through when he's caught, when he's trapped in the cave, when he's got the spear of Saul, when he's acting like a madman amongst the Philistines, and when he's dancing before the Lord and Micah's making a, Michael's making a big deal about it. But we, we've seen days that were beautiful days or dark days or difficult days when the baby died, but there's never, we haven't seen a day like this. This is like Job's dark day. Like you would hope if you lived 80 years, you never see this day like this. I serve 61, I sure don't want to see this day. And I think I speak for all of you, you don't want to see this day. But you know what the truth is in ministry? I've seen people see this day. And maybe the longer you live, you've seen people see this day. It's all just in motion. Our great days, our good days, our testing days, our worst days. They're all just in motion. And what we see in the story of David here is whether we're dancing with the Ark of the Covenant or we're holding up Goliath's head in triumph or we're acting like a crazy man at the gates of Gath or whether our adult son is coming to drive us out of our position, our power, our wealth, everything, God is still on the throne. And the thing about this story is it's not so much as an injustice like Saul persecuting David or David just rejoicing before the Lord. Because when you feel innocent and someone's persecuting you, it's a little bit easier to praise the Lord. Like when you really know, like, no, this, I, this is just, I'm going to praise the Lord because I didn't do anything here. Or when you're going to praise the Lord just because he's made you king and you're, you ran to go get the blessings at Obed-Edith's house and you went and got the blessings, that's easy to do. But how about praising the Lord when it's all falling apart and it's all going to hell on a dark day, your worst day imaginable, and it's chastening for what you've done in your life years before? Let's see how you praise the Lord when you're being chastened by the Lord on a dark day. And that's the beauty of this story because it's a horrible chapter, really. But in this chapter, we see David's humility. He sends the ark back. He sends the ark back. 
he's still got a plan, you know. He tells uh, Hushai, hey, go, go legend, you know, like you're going to go be like secret agent man. You're going to be in the palace and you're, you're undercover. But we know that David was never against Absalom, for even when Absalom dies in the coming chapters and Joab strikes him down, David mourns and grieves so heavily that he has to be told, you better snap out of it or the whole nation is going to turn against you. But that's the love of a parent for children. Well, my sister was homeless for years in Vista, and I saw where she lived behind the Dempsey dumpster, behind the dollar store. And my mom took me there and said, this, this is your sister's little room back here. It's right by the Dempsey dumpster. It's where the Dempsey dumpster should go, but she made a room of it. You know, you roll those things up against like, like, you know, like a two-thirds or three-fourths open. And, and she took that, and that's where she lived. And the dumpster was to the side. And my mom would let my sister come up and take showers once or twice a week. My mom would occasionally, like, feed, feed her a meal and stuff like that. And you think, like, how parents are like that. Like, that had to just be so hard for my mom. For, you know, adult siblings, you know, you can, well, let's be honest. The more adult siblings you have, the more you just be like, Whatever. Okay, that's your deal. That's how it goes with adult siblings sometimes. Like, okay, yeah, all right, don't worry. The loyals will straighten it out. Mom had a trust. It'll work out. Just stand down. But when you're a parent, it's not like that with children. And here's what we talked about with my sister. My mom's unconditional love for my sister was just, I couldn't get past it. My brother and I wanted just pretend she didn't even live anymore. And my brother was convinced she completely lost her mind and could never be restored. And I was 99.9 right there with my brother. But only because of faith in Jesus Christ that I think he could still do something. Because I thought of Mike McIntosh and Jeff Johnson. I go, okay, God restored. Those guys are crazy as can be, and they're pretty fruitful. So I never quite crossed the line that there's no hope for Barbie. But I was like right there, camped on the edge of that line. But my mom just loved my sister through all that stuff. You know, you see her at 7 in the morning yelling at the streetlight because she's drunk at 7 in the morning, yelling at the streetlight like as a person. I've seen it with my own eyes. And my mom always loved my sister. So you realize how much David loved Absalom. And how hard. It's not Saul coming after him. It's his son that he loves heir to the throne. Like David's like, I would have given you everything. What did David do for Solomon when he died? He gave him everything. Would not David have given Absalom everything? So the emotion of David leaving the city is all that's going on. It's so powerful because this is his son. This isn't, we all see movies like, you know, the Nazis coming into Budapest or something or Rotterdam, what it looks like when they come into a city and they roll the people and everyone's capitulating and all standing there crying while the Nazis go by like Paris, you know, in 41, whatever it's like. Everyone's just crying because here come the Nazis and they can do that. We all know what it's like to see a city fall. We've seen it in movies. We understand world history. Then you take the city. But your son is coming to take the city. So David... To avoid any kind of slaughter or anything like that, David's moving on, and he sends the ark back. And in the midst of this, in this latter part of this chapter that we read, we see his great faith on a dark day when it's not unjust because someone's doing it to him unfairly. It's not a a dark day because it's random in life because someone you love died and everyone dies, and that's the way it works. By the time you're 80, you experience that. No, it's a dark day because of his own folly. 
And I think in this chapter, there is comfort for all of us because everyone in this room, who can be honest when they look in the mirrors, we all deserve a dark day for our own folly. We all deserve a dark day for our own folly. We've all done something stupid enough that we would never want to be played on any social media of any kind. In our reasons of our heart, if we didn't do something stupid, we thought about it, embraced it, and would have done it had the Lord not restrained us. So the thing about David's faith in this chapter that makes it unique from his faith and the blessings of God on his life and all the other chapters is in the midst of being chastened by the Lord, because this is that chastening, because when he sinned with Bathsheba, God said, he said to Joab when he had Uriah killed, you know, the sword devours one and then another, who can tell? And the Lord took that same phrase and used it the next chapter against him and said, because you took the wife of Uriah, the sword will not depart from your household. And here it is. Abnon raped Tamar. Absalom killed Abnon. And it just goes on and on. And now here comes Absalom. So in the midst of this, if we frame it, it's all the result of chastening from the Lord upon David's life. And we do find out what kind of a woman we are in the Lord and how we handle chastening. And we find out what kind of a man we are in how we handle chastening. And you just give a few years after someone's been publicly humiliated and chastened for various things like this. We'll find out they really were repentant, won't we? We'll find out if someone's truly broken from their sins and failures that are on public display or not. We'll find out they're sorry because they got caught and everyone knows it, or are they sorry before the Lord because they failed and fell short and they grew from it. Time has a way of proving it. And in David's case, we do know that his faith in this dark chapter, on this dark day, is a true faith, and we know that the legacy of his life in the rest of Second Samuel plus Chronicles is a true faith, sincere faith, and the beauty of grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Romans 5, that these types of stories of David that's just so raw and naked and there's nowhere to hide it. Can you imagine if people could put their comments in blogs and comment on this stuff if it was Instagram or Facebook or whatever? Can you imagine, like, oh, David, all of his enemies, how they would have enjoyed our, our modern social media and what kind of would have been said? But David triumphed through this, and the New Testament, looking back on his life, never associates anything like this of his life, but only looks upon his life favorably. And that's what grace does. Because the, the thing about the dark day, and, and we've had enough of them, not maybe like this, but, you know, we get them, the day of chastening, or public humiliation, or it all goes together, is they teach us not to have confidence in ourselves, and they should humble us. And they can work together for good. It, it truly can. See, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good. And even in our chasing from the Lord, for those who are trained and disciplined by it, Hebrews says, chapter 12, it produces holiness in their life. And David's chastening here. It's not about what these guys think or, or all the betrayal. Because in this chapter, in the next chapter as well, we'll get some of this next week, you have people lying, people trying to deceive him. You see his friends. You see his enemies. You see people that have, you just see all this stuff. But in it all, David comes through it. And I would even say before we go on from this, in, in some key points, is that he just got better from it. And we so often want to define 
I'm going to use sports here for a minute, but so often with sports, you have a great career, but then maybe you have a bad ending. And when it first happens, a bad ending, you kind of see like, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a bad ending. For example, with pro surfing, Kelly Slater's phenomenal. He's 50 years of age. He's twice as old as a surfer that just won the World Tour event in South Africa yesterday. Ethan Ewing is 23. He just won the World Championship Tour event. He's going to be at Lower Trestles next month going for a world title. Kelly Slater will not. Kelly, Kelly has all these injuries at 50, right? Let the reader understand. His body just, he's defied all these things. But I, we're not going to remember Kelly Slater losing to guys whose names you don't even know in the second round at Jeffreys Bay in 2022. 20 years from now, we're going to remember Kelly Slater being 11-time world champion and by far the greatest surfer that ever lived. That's what I'm going to remember. But you see, we might get a freeze frame of seeing him lose to people that weren't even born when he won his first world title. And, and uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, or Michael Jordan, when he finished his great career at the Washington Wizards, and he didn't have his first step anymore, so he couldn't blow to the basket and blow by people like he always did. So he's just got his jump shot. So some no-name guys you don't even know are guarding him in the playoffs and blocking his shots because he lost his first step. But, or, or even, you know, his underwear commercials. I'm not going to remember Michael Jordan when I'm 80 for his underwear commercials or not being able to, you know, have a dunk the ball in a wizard's uniform. I remember Michael Jordan for what he did with the Bulls. In other words, I'm going to remember his greatness, not the latter end of his bad day or a bad ending. And let me say this in this context. We want to remember David for his greatness, not this chapter. See, we're inclined to remember David. Actually, he stands out to us for two reasons. His victory over Goliath and his sin with Bathsheba. But in the, in the Hall of Fame with God, the only thing that matters is the victories, not the defeats. And in God's Hall of Fame, there's nothing there with David that talks about his failure with Bathsheba or the descendants on Uriah. What is there with David is the man after God's own heart, all the beautiful songs he wrote, his legacy of faith transferred to his son Solomon and all that he wrote and all the greatness he did. And that's all that's going to be remembered in heaven. We were singing the song with Scott earlier about when we're in glory. Nobody's going to be talking about David uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah in heaven. It's not going to be there. Nor is your sins and your failures. Though it might be on public display in time, space, and matter, it will not be there in glory. Like we are singing about the glory earlier. It's not there. In a place where we're in glory and there's no more tears and sorrows, I'm quite certain there's nothing to remind us of a bad ending of a great life or the worst day in a good life. Because we, we never arrive. That's what Paul said. We've not yet attained, but we forget what lies behind and we press on what lies ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So as bad as yesterday might be, there could be a bad day in front of us. We don't lose sleep over it. You try and do the right thing today, one day at a time. We can't live in anxiety or fear of potential future failures. We need to cling to the Lord today and go forward. But in glory, this isn't remembered. And that's why it's so important in this experience in life, and we do get these experiences in life in varying degrees, all of us. It's important to keep our faith in the difficult and dark day that we're going through because of our own failures. Because that's where the devil really wants to come in and get us to completely abandon, abandon our faith. No matter how many times we fail, the Lord's going to pick us up and take us forward as long as we're willing to keep going forward. It's only game over when we walk away. 
you strike a righteous woman down, a righteous man, no matter how many times they strike them down, if they're truly righteous through faith in the Lord, they're going to rise up and they're going to go forward. And that's the key. Always forward, always forward, always forward, always forward. Now, this was a time of great sorrow, and we've seen this. And as we've been talking, we do have times of great sorrow. It says in verse 23, all the country wept a loud voice. Then it says in verse 30, so David went up with the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. He had his head covered and went barefoot. This is such a hard scene. It makes you want to cry. And if you want to cry, cry, because this is really sad. And all the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. So check your boxes. The nation, the people that truly love the Lord, they know what's going on right here. And it's as sad as any day could be. It's as sad as 9-11, but more sad. It's as sad as FDR passing and the photos we remember growing up of the parade in D.C. with everyone sobbing. FDR before World War II was done. It's as sad as Kennedy being assassinated and three days where our nation stopped and our entire nation was sobbing and stunned at the assassination of our president. It's a national sorrow, and that's what we're talking about. Not a national trial like we've been through in the last couple of years. A national sorrow, like when we all saw the Twin Towers come down. But different. Because it's the sorrow of the person you loved who led you in faith being disgraced and removed in dishonor by his own son. But there's a national weeping. And then there is the king himself weeping, It's like seeing one of our presidents barefoot leaving the White House. Barefoot, sobbing in shame. It'd be so hard to watch. That's what it's like. So the emotion of the king with his heart for the Lord, and then those who went with him, his immediate closest friends and family. So he's weeping. He's barefoot. His closest family members and friends, they're weeping. And anyone that really understands the times and season they're living in, they're weeping. There goes the greatest man that we've had in the last 500 years in the nation of Israel, King David. And his son is coming in his place. And anyone with an ounce of discernment knows it's, a, it's just a horrible, horrible situation. And again, we talk about horrible things that happen in our life that are out of our control, horrible things that our adult children might bring upon us, horrible thing that just can come when the, when, the, when the Germans invade Belgium in the beginning of World War I and they take everything and just destroy everything. There are horrible things that happen in the human experience. But in this moment where the nation's crying, the friends and family are crying, and the king is crying, we realize that Jesus is a man of sorrows. And one of the clearest descriptions of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is Isaiah 53. And there it says, when the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, it says that he is a man of sorrows. And we're told in Hebrews that he's our great priest and that he can relate to us in every situation. So the incredible beauty of amazing grace is Jesus never sinned, but when he was tempted, he knew what sin felt like. 
And when he was crucified for our sins, he took on the consequence of sin. So he would know what sin feels like when you're being, it's being imputed to you, the consequences of it, physically, spiritually, eternally, to be separated from the Father. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? So he knows, and that's why he doesn't just minister to us because we're tempted. He ministered to us, to, us, to us because he knows what it feels like to be the murderer, the adulterer, the rapist, the thief, and the liar. Because God made him who knew no sin become sin for us. And he had to become in all things like us that he might redeem us. So in the moment of weeping for David, his friends, his family, and the nation, we are told when Jesus is on the cross, Isaiah 53 prophetically, that he is a man of sorrows on the cross. Because on the cross, he is knowing how we feel in this moment like David. And we're told, of course, that short verse in the Bible, John chapter 11, Jesus wept. So whenever we're in the place of weeping over the heartache of life and sin and the consequences of sin and just in general, it is broader, but specifically in the context of sin and chastening, Jesus was chastened. So he knows what it feels like to be chastened. He wasn't chastened for his failures. He was chastened for ours. But he knows what it feels like because he had it laid upon him. Isn't that amazing? Like, think about this. He knows how you and I feel when we're completely ashamed in our sin. He knows what it's like to be chastened like we're chastened for our sin. But what he knows more than we do is he knows what death tastes like for our sin. Because none of us alive right now knows what death tastes like. See, when we die, we'll know what death tastes like. Even though he's a good shepherd, he comes for us. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We're going to see the shadow but not the substance of death. See, we all have death in front of us. The Bible tells us always to live in the moment of today and always be ready for that moment of today. And the experiences where we were rejoicing or we're weeping, Jesus can always relate to us from the highest mountain to the deepest valley. And Jesus is a man of sorrows. So Jesus knows the frailty of this journey. Our life is a vapor in a trillion galaxies. And yet he, as the man of sorrows, took on our sorrows so that every sorrow we ever face, and in the context of this passage, the sorrow of our failure, he is able to minister to us in that place. Isn't that beautiful? Like, that is really beautiful, worship generation. There's no world religion that offers this to us at all. Most world religions say, climb that mountain, swim that river, double dunk a hundred times, do this, do that, run backwards, and just, just, most world religions... Fallen men and women with fallen minds and concepts of God with human doctrine come up with all kinds of ideas on how to handle sin and the sense of failure and guilt from sin. But only the word of God, the Bible, promises from Genesis to Revelation that the son would come, the son did come, and he died and he rose, and he's right hand of the Father, able to meet every need we face, and is coming again in glory. We serve a glorious Savior. Because what if you had to face this dark day? What if your faith has to face this dark day from our own shortcomings and we can't face it in faith? What if you have to face this day in religion? Like in all that you can conjure up in a self-made, self-manufactured religion. Isn't that horrible to even think that thought? Because that's what people in the world do apart from Christ. Let alone the agnostic and atheist and their pseudo-intellectualism. Who even knows what they do? But isn't it glorious that we can fall at the feet of Jesus, the man of sorrows who weeps at 
the tomb. And we're told in 2 Corinthians, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our sorrow, that we might even comfort others going forward from our sorrow. Ah, that's beautiful. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is just one giant story of sinful people falling short and being saved by a great Savior. That's really what the message of the Bible is. Men and women alike. And we, we, we face dark days. Again, the context is for chastening, but it can go broader than that. There's great sorrow in time, but we have a great high priest who's greater than that sorrow, even when the sorrow is brought on by our own failures. We see David trust in the Lord as well. We see there in verse 25. This is, this is such a great verse, verse 25 and 26, where he says, he tells Zedek, hey, take the ark of God back to Jerusalem, to the city. And he says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says this, I have no delight in you. Here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. This is faith. Like people think faith is like, oh, I'm believing God to do this. And we're believing God to do that or believing God to do this. This is real faith. This is like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel when they say to Nebuchadnezzar, look, our God is able to deliver us from you and the fire, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to do what you're telling us to do that goes against our conscience of our faith. That's real faith. And in this case, when David's fully being spanked and on public display for his failures a decade later, and it's all out there, he sends the Ark of the Covenant back He's just a vapor in a universe of a trillion galaxies. And he says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. Not only will he bring me back, he'll show me both it and his dwelling place. He'll bring me back and restore to me all that I'm letting go of right now because he's letting go of everything. This is so profound, body of Christ. David is letting go of everything right here. Like the book of Job. He could have tried to fight for it, Job lost everything without a choice. David could have tried to fight for this. He, he, let it, he, let it, he let it all go. And he says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and show, and his dwelling place, I'll be restored to the place of fellowship where I don't feel like the other shoe's going to fall. I'll be restored. But if he says, I have no delight in you, well, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Isn't that powerful? That is so, like if you really meditate upon the word, worship generation, this is so powerful. But it was David who said in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. So from his own confession of his entire life, he told people, God is good. God is good and does good. God is light and him is no darkness at all. He's going to only do good. And whatever he's doing, it's good. In judgment, in chastening, it's always just and true and noble are his ways. He said to uh, Ita early, earlier on, hey, the, uh, may, you, may mercy and truth be with you. Like David, that's, he's got that kind of stuff on his mind. When he's trying to send Ita away, he's like, hey, mercy and truth be with you. He, he still, he knows the heart of God because he has the heart for God. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to trust in the Lord. Later on when he's chastened for the census and God gives him a choice, hey, three years this way, three months that way, or three days this way. The three days was three days under the chasing of the Lord. So he had three years of a certain way, and it's three months of another way, and then 
three days. I think, it, well, three days was chasing the Lord. And he's like, hey, I'll take three days beat down with the living God. Because who knows if he might not be merciful. But men are never merciful. You know the story. If you do it, he said, I don't want to be delivered of my enemies for three months. Can you imagine what the Moabites and the Philistines and Malachites can do to me? No way. I'll take three days with God just cool bringing it. I'll take it swift and severe and absolute from the final authority. But please, Lord, not three months or three weeks or three years from these people. So his faith is so strong right here because he says, if he blesses me, he blesses me, and that'll be great. But if he judges me, I accept that because God is only going to do what's good, and he always does what's good. Isn't that beautiful? There's no excuses. There's no like, well, how about them and them and this and that and everything else. It's like, you know what? Like Job said, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll return. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Honey, we've accepted blessings from the Lord. Can we not accept adversity from the Lord? Let's, we're all, we've lost everything today, honey. Let's just be real with God. And what happened with Job? God did restore everything, didn't he? In fact, he didn't just restore it. He restored it double. But you think, really, you think with Job, his faith would have been fine even if God didn't restore it double. It's just nice that God did restore it double. And the last thing, so we see that in the time of great sorrow, Jesus is a man of sorrows. And we see from David that you need to trust in the Lord uh, and trust in the goodness of the Lord. Whether it, it, Because sometimes in chastening, we lose things that we never get back. And we can't be bitter about that. We got to just say, well, that's the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord took. And sometimes in chastening, it, it, you wish it didn't end up that way, but it did. The Lord can take things and you might not restore them. But the Lord is good. So if you lose wealth, you lose property, you lose health, you lose marriages, you, you lose relationships, that's a tough one. But no matter what, we got to know, let him do to me as seems good to him because the Lord is good. And the Lord will always do good for the woman of the man who trusts in him, especially when they're being chastened by the Lord. And then finally we see on the mountain, look at verse 32, you can almost miss this. In the midst of all this chaos and all these conspiracies and all these things, and he gets to the top of the mountain, he's barefoot, he's sobbing, his friends are sobbing, the nation is sobbing, and what does he do? He stops everything and he worships God. Now, most likely he prayed. We don't read about him offering up a sacrifice or anything like that, but he just stopped. He just stopped. In the midst of chaos, he stopped on the top of this mountain and he worshiped God. And that makes chapter 15 quite beautiful, even though it's quite sad, doesn't it? Because so many people in the dark day forget to stop and worship God. And so many people in the dark day blame God, curse God, and refuse to worship God. But the woman with a heart after God and the man with a heart after God will stop in the midst of the darkest day and worship God. And this is what makes David so great. We think David's great because he didn't throw the spear back at, he didn't put the spear through Saul. He didn't do to Saul what Saul would do to him. He felt bad for cutting Saul's rope. We think that's great. We think David's great because he, you know, he took out Goliath against all odds and was it? 
carrying around Goliath's sword. We think he's great for all these different things. But really, you can argue this might be David's greatest moment right here at verse 32. Because in the darkest day imaginable in the human experience from his own chastening, he can still stop and from the heart be on record for worshiping God. So I'm going to close tonight with reading to you Psalm 3, which is the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. So let me get my Bible here. Psalm 3. Psalm 3 right here. Psalm 3 says this. The Lord helps his troubled people. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is a song and a prayer when he's fleeing. So we can connect this with what we just read when he's worshiping God at the top of the mountain barefoot and weeping. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him and his God. See, when you fall into sin, people feel like they want to be God and judge you for your sin. And they think God should be judging you for their sin. So they make themselves judge and jury of your life. They replace the place of God over you and they make themselves above God over you. Because if they're God, they're going to judge you. And so David says, many are those, they who save me, there's no help from his God. People want to write you off on your worst day. People want to throw you under the bus. People want to say, there's no hope for you. You did this out of wedlock. You did this out of wedlock. You did this before you were married. You did this. You did that. You stole this. You lied about that. People want to throw us under the bus all the time. And Christians are known to, to shoot their wounded. Don't. It's never our place. And Jesus even said so in the Sermon on the Mount. Many are those who say of me, there's no help from God, for him and God. May we never, even in the worst day, ever say there's no help for you or me from God. When it's as bad as it gets, may you still know there is help from God. Because he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And he died on the cross to make us his children. So even when we're being severely chastened, We need to know there is help and there's a future and hope always for the woman and the man of faith. It's always forward. Then he said in verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield to me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and you heard me from his holy hill. Wow. Okay. So you're my shield. You're my glory. See, send the ark back. The Lord is the glory of Jerusalem, not me. You're my glory. Send that ark back. He's my glory. I got no glory. He's my glory. When I defeated Goliath, what did I say? I come at you in the name of the Lord. The Lord is my glory. It's not not me. It's about the Lord. The Lord is my glory. Take the ark back. And he lifts my head. Think about it. He's weeping. His head's down going up the hill. He lifts my head. Because sin does this and the devil does that. But the Lord does this. He lifts my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Huh? He's on top of the Mount of Olives. He worships at the top of the hill. This hill of grief and heartache, he calls God's holy hill. The hill of his greatest sorrow, he calls God's holy hill where he's worshiping the Lord in this dark day. He made the worst day of his life, the worst moment of his life, a holy place. And he worshiped God and said, I cried to you with my voice, and he heard me on his holy hill.
I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Yep, the armies of Absalom are coming. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. He could say that of his entire life. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. So he confesses the truth and reality of the universal truth of this universe. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if the Lord gives me favor, he'll bring me back. If not, he'll do what's good. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Even on the worst and darkest day of my life. That's the last thing he says. We've been talking about David saying, go get the blessings. Go go to Obedium's house and go get those blessings, right? Look what he says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. And David was experiencing it right there on this holy hill on the darkest day in the worst moment probably his entire life. He's worshiping the Lord. He's writing a beautiful song for all of us to sing with him on our dark day and to take comfort in. Body of Christ, worship generation, God's got it. Hold fast to the Lord in every circumstance, whether it be persecution, a joyful day, or the afflictions of our own folly. Hold fast to the Lord and never stop believing, never stop going forward, and never stop worshiping, and never stop trusting in the goodness of God. Because God is good. And taste and see, even in the worst day, we can know that for a fact.